passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. To episode 15 of Cruel Summer, a podcast that looks back at each and every G1 Climax Tournament Finals from the years 1991 to 2018. And today we're covering uh, the year 2005, which features Masahiro Chono taking on Kazuki, Kazuki Fujita in, uh, in a match that I, I'm going to say, like, I don't know if it's going to be better or worse than the, the last Chono match I reviewed with uh Yoshiro Takayama. Well, I do know if it's going to be better or worse, but you'll just have to keep on listening to find out. So, uh, joining me today, I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, he's an independent wrestler from uh, Australia, from Perth, Australia, I believe. He's also the head trainer at the EPW uh, Wrestling School. Uh, his name is Davis Storm. Davis, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to join you, WH. I've uh, been a big fan of your work on post and previously on the law. So I'm uh, very excited to have a chat to you today. Uh, thank you so much. You're, you're one of those uh, people that like are, you know, very, uh, I suppose, active, like with like, you know, supporting me on, on Twitter and stuff. I'm like, Who, who's this guy always like liking my stuff? There's like, like there's a, <laughs> there's a handful of people, like almost everything I do. A lot of them are from Australia too. It's very interesting. Uh, but and you're one of them. And I thought, I looked at your name. I was like, Davis Storm. And I thought immediately thought must be a wrestler. with the the last name storm it must be a wrestler like you're part of that kind of unrelated family of of wrestlers that's as big as say the the samoan dynasty or or the Hart family you know you got of course the patriarch i guess is is lance you got your 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 second cousin tony uh you have your third cousin twice removed over in noah quiet you know and then there's there's you davis storm so i have to ask you like what made you pick the name storm for your your wrestling name i honestly it was it was such a long time ago now it's um i've I've been wrestling for 17 years so it really was a long time ago but um i honestly believe that uh my intention was lance storm definitely would have been a wrestler who I looked to not just in terms of his incredible ring work, but also 
he was a dependable guy. He was someone as a promoter that you would want on your roster because he could fill any role. And that's, I suppose, how I kind of saw myself when I started. I wanted to be someone who could work with anyone, someone who could fill a role on a show. So I don't think I ever really saw myself as being a superstar. And obviously Lance had an incredibly successful career. Um, but I, I saw myself as that dependable guy who could hopefully get it done with anybody. Well, uh, you know, like from what I could gather, you're a very dependable, you know, person on the Australian wrestling scene. Like not only are you a wrestler yourself, but you're also a trainer. Uh, and let's talk a bit about your your school, the, the one you work at, the EPW. What's the exact title of, of the school? The EPW School of Pro Wrestling, which... It's kind of a silly name because EPW stands for Explosive Pro Wrestling. So that would be the Explosive Pro Wrestling School of Pro Wrestling. Uh, but that's the official title. Okay. Uh, and Explosive Pro Wrestling is uh, a promotion based out of Perth, Australia. Is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. And like, who would we know any of the people that you might have had a hand in training, Davis? Uh, sure. Uh, Shane Thorne, uh, Mikey Nichols formerly Nick Miller of NXT. Um, Chris Vice, who's been a mainstay over in Zero One Pro Wrestling. Um, I think he's lived in Japan for almost, I think it's coming up to his one year anniversary now. So, um, and then Damien Slater's had a lot to do with our school, both uh, early on in his career as probably more as, as a student than anything. And then over time, uh, he's become one of the head trainers there as well. So uh, we've we've got an excellent crop of guys there, some really top-notch trainers, and we've had a lot of guys who, I think, much like myself, haven't really branched out an awful lot, haven't travelled overseas. Where we are, Perth, it's, it's well known as the most isolated capital city in the world. So we, um, we're, we're kind of out on an island here, which in wrestling terms, I suppose, can be a little bit frustrating that it's sometimes hard to get your name out from Perth, Western Australia. But the the good thing is being so segregated from the rest of wrestling, we can really keep our nose out of a lot of the bullshit that goes on in wrestling. So um, there's positives and negatives to it, I suppose. I always feel that, you know, like uh, the Australian scene, just especially in the last, I don't know, like five to ten years, there's so much really well-known talent has come out of there and migrated to, you know, other countries, the United States to Japan and to the UK that it, it almost seems like if that talent stayed and you could foster a scene similar to Japan, that you could have like your own new Japan pro wrestling. You could have your own all Japan pro wrestling in Australia. Cause there's so much talent that's obviously like there already that doesn't, that wouldn't need to go anywhere else. But obviously do you ever see a situation where the Australian scene could be like that? Uh, it's it's certainly the hope for a lot of us. I think it's it's hard to it's it's hard to say in that there's nothing about the Australian pro wrestling scene that is definitively Australian. So um, when I say American wrestling, American professional wrestling, I think everyone has an idea of what I mean. When we say Japanese professional wrestling, everyone has an idea of what that is. And and same with the the UK that they they have a very distinct style of wrestling that sets them apart from everybody else. I think Australia's really lacked that in that it's it's never really been a part of the culture here. So everything that we've done has been influenced by those three major scenes. And I think 
the, the, the lack of distinct Aussie flavor to our wrestling has probably result us, resulted in us not really connecting uh, in, in the same way that it does in, in Japan, in the UK and in the States. So um, also, I don't know if you know the history of Australian wrestling all that much, but um, Australian wrestling was huge in the, in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, World Championship Wrestling started out here and it was on mainstream TV. They were selling out huge stadiums and it almost seemed that once Australians started to cotton on to the fact that it wasn't above board, that it wasn't a, a legit contest, um, the, the country almost seemed burnt on wrestling and, and that's really stuck with, uh, stuck with the mainstream, almost that the first thing people in Australia want to do when they hear the, the term pro wrestling, they want to make sure that you know that they know that it's not a real contest. That's that's the most important thing to them is to make sure that you understand that they haven't had the wall pulled over their eyes. And I think that's almost a, a societal issue here that um, Australians don't like being deceived. They don't like to be anybody's fool. And I think wrestling, uh, even to this day, has probably suffered from the fact that 30, 30, 40 years ago, uh, parents and grandparents felt like they had the wool pulled over their eyes. So um, will it ever make it to be uh, the kind of scene that we see in Japan or the US? Probably not. Uh, the UK, probably a little more likely. But again, it's it's just not ingrained in the culture the way it is in those three hotbeds. Did you ever see a point where the WB will come in and put one of their satellite promotions like w- NXT Australia over it, over in your country? Yeah, I mean, when they opened the UK branch, I think that was a question that came up a fair bit. And Triple H is saying maybe in the next five to ten years. But uh, I think a lot of it will depend on the success of the UK and, and whether or not the brand and the performance center in the UK works, works out or not. Um, but I would imagine that they would want some sort of footprint in Southeast Asia and Australia is probably as good a place as any. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, you know, people say in Japan, like, oh, what do you think about like NXT maybe coming in there and like, you know, kind of like co-opting a lot of the talent or a promotion. I, I think, the two countries that would be most immune to to the you know the WB expansion would be Japan and the other one would be Mexico just because of established yeah. wrestling cultures and and established wrestling economies and, and 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 cultures here already. So I don't think they would have an easy time breaking into the into the Japanese or the the Mexican markets. So I, I'm not never worried about NXT Japan ever becoming a thing here or taking over the talent roster of a pre-existing company or anything like that. Not what they've kind of done to the UK scene, which I, I personally feel is like one of the most horrible things that's been done to a, a particular country's <laughs> wrestling scene is the WWF, the WWE coming, kind of going in there and co-opting all this talent and stuff, you know, and fair play to all the talent that side contracts, no, no ill will towards them. Please get your money do what's best for your for your career and your family and stuff. But uh, let's move it back to Davis Storm and, and uh, away from the the larger the larger picture of Australian wrestling. Uh, what got you started as a fan of professional wrestling? One, and then maybe more specifically of Japanese professional wrestling. So, uh, professional wrestling in a, in a broader sense, WrestleMania Five was the the first thing that I ever saw. It was on, at the time, we only had three TV channels in Australia. That's how far back I go. Maybe four. 
I think it might have been the third commercial TV station, which was Channel 10 here in Perth. And WrestleMania was five. Uh, WrestleMania five was on, and I had never seen anything like this in my life. Um, it just the, the characters just truly reached through the screen and smacked me in the face. Um, I was really drawn to the the Rockers. Uh, I was really drawn to the Ultimate Warrior. I I was the world's biggest Ultimate Warrior mark as a kid. So, um, and oddly enough, something that would probably prove to be a wise decision in the end. I was never a Hulkamaniac. And I remember even just watching that WrestleMania five card, seeing the build to Savage and Hogan. And uh, I backed Randy Savage completely. I, I thought he was, he was well within his rights. I thought Hogan overstepped his boundaries with Elizabeth. And uh, I was 100% a macho man supporter in that WrestleMania five main event. So that was, that was uh where it all started for me. And then uh, just getting the Coliseum home videos, I remember waiting. It would take three months for WWF then uh, releases to come out here in Australia and trying to avoid results and wanting to read all the magazines that I could and picking up WWF magazine and PWI and The Wrestler. and But at the same time, trying to avoid results so that I could uh, I could actually enjoy the the pay-per-views and the, the other videos when they would come out. Um, but Japanese pro wrestling, I think like a lot of people, uh, particularly a lot of people in Australia, my first exposure, I think was probably a combination of the J cup 95 and the RF best of the nineties videos, which I think probably did the rounds in uh, any independent wrestling fans uh, circles. Those, those tapes were well worn by the time they got to Australia, and there was a tape trader here uh, named Feg Collectibles, uh, and we used to order from there. They were, I believe, they were ba based in New South Wales, and I think they had an association with uh, a guy by the name of Dan Leonard, uh, who wrote a smart wrestling mag at the time here in Australia called Pile Driver, and I would credit Pile Driver and Power Slam with with smartening smartening me up a lot to the business at that time um obviously you, you start to get some understanding of how wrestling works by watching it and just coming of age having watched it but um these magazines sort of broke down more of the behind the scenes details and and how things worked um so yeah th those were the those were the videos that really connected me with japanese wrestling and it's funny, I, I was listening to, I think it was episode five or six with Strigger this weekend, mm -hmm. and my path to Japanese wrestling very much mirrors your own, that the the guys that I was drawn to were uh, that that junior heavyweight scene of Kanemoto, Otani, Takaiwa, Liger, El Samurai, um, and then bleeding through to... Uh, Minoru Tanaka and others joining in the in the late 90s and that was that was uh that just captured my imagination obviously it was unlike anything that you you would see in a WWE ring that that uh 90s New Japan junior heavyweight style I mean really it's revolutionized the entire business I mean, I, I look at that scene that the you know the New Japan Juniors of the like the 1990s, obviously spearheaded by Jushin Thunder Liger, that it was more revolutionary than I even think like 
of, of King's Road style of the 1990s in all Japan, which I, which is a style I absolutely love as well. But I, I thought that it was such a beautiful blend of like every form of pro wrestling available, like of strong style itself, but also like Lucha Libre of like submission wrestling of like, uh, you know, night, what you would see in the nineties, like WCW, like, or not the, the the late nineties WCW cruiserweight t- uh, scene, and it's just all that was in New Japan, and with this like more realistic kind of lens that was being projected through, and I just just grasped onto that because I tend to like more of the the, the hard hitting wrestlers, wrestlers who have more of a believable gimmick. I don't mind the occasional character; that's fine for me. But I like if the wrestling style itself is very grounded in reality and 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 sports and 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 just athleticism in general and that's what that scene gave to me i i always say this that my two favorite promotions of all time was you know the 90s of all japan pro wrestling the heavyweights and the 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 90s new japan junior scene more so than the heavyweight scene which is funny because i'm doing an entire series of the heavyweight scene <laughs> of new japan pro wrestling from the 90s to today so it's pretty funny we do that but let, let's move on to the uh 2000, 2005 g1 climax uh it was a two block 16 man round robin tournament held from august 4th to august 14th and uh as i go through some of these names i'm gonna i'm gonna ask about one person in particular that i know you had a had a match with but let, let's go through a block first uh in a block we have masahiro chono uh we also have toshiaki kawada from all japan pro wrestling making his first appearance in the g1 climax uh then we have yuji nagata hiroyoshi tenzan minoru suzuki kendo kashin Osama Nishimura and Tatsumi Fujinami. And now, Davis, you, you've had a match with one of these people I've just mentioned, haven't you? I actually have an association with two of the competitors that you mentioned. So the first one you're referring to, obviously, is Minoru Suzuki, who was simultaneously one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever met in professional wrestling and absolutely 100% the most terrifying man to stand next to because... Uh, he was he was very polite, very professional, but there was a clear understanding between the two of us that he could end my life whenever he wished to. So, yeah, he's he's a, an incredibly interesting guy, a guy I've looked up to for the majority of my pro wrestling career. Much like yourself, the the style that I like is grounded in reality, and uh, he's there's no greater representation of that in anywhere in professional wrestling than Minoru Suzuki. So I I don't know how much you want to pull back the curtain and, you know, please feel free to like not say anything if you don't want to, but like, is it, what is it like to try to put a match together with Minoru Suzuki? I mean, really, he's, he's such a pro that I'm just following his lead. Um, there's, there was no, he didn't really need to know anything because there is no position. There's no circumstances. There's, there's nothing that I can put him in that will make him feel uncomfortable. There is nothing that would uh, put him in a situation that he couldn't control, obviously, because he's such a skilled fighter and such a skilled grappler that, um, yeah, there, there really wasn't anything to it because he could he could just accept, uh, invite me almost to do whatever I wished because he was 100% in control of me the entire time. There was there was nothing that I could do to that man that he wouldn't allow. Right, and I, w- I would imagine that after the match, you were a little worse for wear than before the match. 
Look, there's there's some tremendous photos I'll I'll try and get online after that match. Uh, I had a father uh, come up to me after the show. I, I walked my wife and my kids out to the car after the show, and I was I was walking back, and he couldn't believe that the red welts that he saw in the ring were actually legit. He he actually told me that he thought, and I don't know how on earth he thought this worked, but. He actually thought that Minoru had some form of red paint on his hand. And as he was chopping me, the paint was going all over my neck and my shoulder, um, which I can assure you it absolutely did not. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just laughing at that idea that Minoru Suzuki puts red paint on his hand like he's the fucking great Muda or something with the <laughs> That's great. Who, now, who is the other wrestler you have an association with? I, I, I know because you mentioned him to me privately, but who, who yes. for the listeners, who is the other wrestler? So the other wrestler I have a connection with is Kendo Kashin, who was the head trainer at the Anoki Dojo in LA when I was there for a six-week period in, uh, I think it would have been early 2006. And who was in that class with you at the LA Dojo? Uh, I, I like to always liken myself to being the Marty Jannetty to absolutely everyone else's, uh, Shawn Michaels in that class. So guys, guys that I spent time with there, uh, Hartley Jackson, who's actually my mentor, who's now a coach in NXT, um, Mikey Nichols, uh, current member of chaos and new Japan pro wrestling, TJ Perkins, Alex Kozlov. Carl Anderson and a little name that some people might know, a uh, young Irish fella named Fergal Debit. Uh, yeah, I think are, he's doing quite well for himself at the moment. Uh, I think he wears like paint once in a while and wrestles on TV over in the WWE. Yeah, but that that is a hell of a class you were part of. I, I can't. I can only imagine some of the stories you might have that you're not going to tell us about here on air, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I had a laugh with a friend the other day and said that uh, yeah, if the walls if the walls could talk if the walls could talk. Oh, there's like you know like I I I'm not some kind of deep insider into wrestling or anything like that, but I I have people who tell me things like they say like because they know you know they they like the show and they and they have like some tangible connections to wrestling here in Japan and they tell me stuff and I'm like. Wow. Like, and I, I can't repeat any of these things. You, you would just, sure. be, it would just, I shouldn't even be saying that I know this stuff, but anyways, let's move on <laughs> to the, let's move on to the B block. So in B block, we have Kazuyuki Fujita, Shinsuke Nakamura, Manabu Nakanishi, Hiroshi Tanahashi, Yutaka Yoshie, uh, Tatsutoshi Goto, Toro Yano, and Togi Makabe. And do you have any connections with anyone in the B block, Davis? Nobody whatsoever. Nobody. You weren't like, you know, like drinking buddies with Shinsuke Nakamura when he came to the LA Dojo or anything like that? Oh, actually, a, a bunch of the guys that I trained spent some time with Nakamura when he was there. So I I missed his his uh, sojourn to the Inoki Dojo probably by about three to six months. Um, but, I mean, those guys all, they, they trained with him every day and improved so much when they came back. And he, he was still fairly young into his career at that time mm -hmm, yeah 2005 would be just like as he's not he like he's kind of the supernova but like nakamura isn't that guy yet it would take a couple of more overseas excursions and particularly to mexico before he would become the, the king of strong style that we know uh him today but uh let's 
take a look at the our finalists in the this year's G1 would be Masahiro Chano and uh, Kazuyuki Fujita. Let's look at their paths to the finals. Uh, in the in the round robin portion of the tournament, Chono beat Tatsumi Fujinami, he beat Kendo Kashin, he beat Toshiaki Kawada, he beat uh, Yuji Nagata, and he beat Minoru Suzuki. He suffered losses to Osama Nishimura and to his protege, Hiroyoshi Tenzan. Uh, Fujita's path, very easy. He ran the table, he beat everyone, and he beat them all under 10 minutes. So this is a time where they're like full on, we got to push a shooter, a guy who's got, you know, legit credibility. And to, for him to, like, if you... Like, let me go through those names. Nakamura, Nakanishi, Tanahashi, uh, Makabe. Under 10 minutes, he beat all of them, Davis. It's pretty incredible, like, the, the, the faith that New Japan had in this guy at that time. Absolutely. But, I mean, if you look at the, the, the you know, the, the, the MMA pro wrestling crossover was probably, I mean, you could say that it's at its peak now, but it, it was at its peak probably in Japan during that stage. And, you know, this is a guy who had stepped in the ring with guys like Mark Kerr, Bob Sapp, Ken Shamrock. Um, I believe he's fought Mirko Krokop and Fyodor Emelianenko as well. Um, so this is a guy with the most legit credentials that you p- could possibly get. And uh, and that is exactly what Antonio Inoki was absolutely in love with during this period. Yes, definitely. What we uh, now refer to as... Inokiism, though, I, I will say for anybody, you know, <laughs> who's listening to this and fancies himself as a, a, a quote-unquote Inokiist, like, I don't have a problem with Inokiism if we're talking about the 1970s, uh, if we're talking about the 1980s, <laughs> or we're talking about the, the, the even the 90s. I, I have more of a problem with this kind of Inokiism that's not so much Antonio Inoki uh, as an island of himself as a booker, but as part of the, the, the entity known as the Inoki office that did a lot of damage to New Japan uh, in this time period. And, uh, you know, like, so I, 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 I respect people who like the philosophy of real fighting and like having credibility and being legit as a pro wrestler to, to kind of sell the product to the masses as like this, this is a real sport. And I have no problem with that philosophy. I, I, I embrace that philosophy, but I don't, you know, I don't embrace it to the, point where we sacrifice like talented people who can make you money because they're not legit enough in the eyes of say like Antonio Noki. But anyways, I don't want to deviate too far from too far from our topic here. Let let Davis, let's move on to the match itself. We we uh, we open up uh, on uh, Sumo Hall in the ring. We see uh, Kazuyuki Fujita uh, in the ring with uh, Manabu Nakanishi and Yuji Nagata in his corner. So this is the point where he's still kind of part of the New Japan regular army. He's got two of the other big stars of his generation uh, uh, supporting him against Chono. Uh, so, and then in Chono's corner, we see the entirety of, uh, Team 2000, including Jushin Liger, or, or is this when he's changed it to Black New Japan? I can't remember. Yeah, it's, I, 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 I will be honest. I did see him in the corner, but I, I wasn't even particularly paying too much attention at that time. I was, I was very much listening out for the reaction that both guys were getting because I know that Fujita is very much a maligned figure in new japan pro wrestling history so i was i was very attuned to the reaction that both guys would get but it it seems like at least at this period that um he still has a very strong following but nothing nothing like masahiro chono who it it sounds like hulk hogan in 84 when when his name's announced at the beginning there 
Oh, there's a huge, yeah, Chono call. I have that in my notes. And uh, But getting back to Team 2000 just very quickly, I just wanted to note some of these names. So we have Jushin Liker in Chono's corner, and he's wearing this funky CTU mask, which, by the way, is, has nothing to do with 24. It's not a counter-terrorist unit. It, it, what CTU stood for it was like this heel. This is when Jushin Liker was a heel, one of his rare times he's doing his heel run. He was the leader of this group called Controlled terror unit with Jado, <laughs> Ghetto, uh, who are all in the corner, uh, Minoru Tanaka, and other members of uh, of uh, Team 2000 here you see would be, you know, Toriyano, and uh, Mitsuya Nagai, who actually uh, migrated from All Japan all Japan to New Japan, and then he moved to other promotions, and now he's currently wrestling in, in Pro Wrestling Noah right now. Uh, so yeah, like you said, big, big Chono call. At when, when Masahiro Chono is introduced. So, you know, in spite of a lot of things that's going on in New Japan, he's still looked upon as this big hero. Like kind of I, I think because he was part of a of an era, of a generation, of a of a group of wrestlers that these fans think embody what New Japan should be and and is. So I think he's the only one left at this point. Like uh, you know, like Kashimoto has gone to zero one muto has migrated over to becoming the the head of all japan pro wrestling so chono is really the only three musketeer left even like people like choshu are gone i think and, and uh, um who else is gone like sasake is pretty much nowhere to be seen i don't you know he's like he's he, i don't know if he's fully gone at this point but like he, like chono basically is new japan pro wrestling to all these fans here uh also in the ring is red shoes uno my favorite referee of all time <laughs> now i i'm i'm very much not a fan of, of red shoes you know davis where do you stand on on red shoes um i i understand probably as well as any pro wrestler that a a referee has a huge role to play in a match they they are the unsung third man in the ring and a to me the the referees that I like the most are the referees that I don't tend to notice. And over time there have been some referees who, uh, you know, even, even stateside there, there are some referees who all wrestlers kind of know by whatever it is, their trademark is. And I'm, I'm not sure that a referee should have a trademark. I'm not sure they should have something that, that they're known by. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as the WWE where they, want their officials to be nameless and faceless, but really they, they should just be like an official at a baseball game or a football game where they're just there to service a role and to, they're not there to be the, the, the stars of the show. But I, I will say that there are times where it's definitely appropriate for uh, a, a referee's reaction can, can be a huge addition to a match. Oh, definitely. I, I, I don't mind if he's, like when he tones it down, I'm okay. It's like when he goes into his like Lee Strasberg school of acting style of refereeing that I'm just like, oh my god, please stop, <laughs> just stop. I, 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 we can notice you red shoes. You're wearing everything. Everything is red. Your armband, your shoes, your belt. <laughs> you don't need to start acting. I, I always say this. Like I feel he's a failed mime from the streets of Paris that that just thought he could become a pro, pro wrestling referee instead because he he wasn't very good at miming. But anyways. Getting back to the match. Uh, we start off, Chono asks uh, Fujita for a handshake, but F- Fujita just brushes his hand away, 
body slams him and starts driving his knee strikes into Chono's head and kicks to, uh, and he starts kicking away at Chono, uh, both targeting his head and his body. And I just wrote down here, what an asshole. What, what would you do, Davis? You're a wrestler, you offer your handshake, and then the guy just starts like kneeing you in the head. I mean, there's there's no respect paid here. You know, Chano's such a a uh, a huge figure in Japanese pro wrestling, and no respect paid by Fujita. Just straight into it, straight out of the gate, and and away he goes. And uh, for for me, I suppose when you offer that handout as a pro wrestler, you know it's probably not going to lead anywhere positive for you. So uh, I think Chono probably knew what he was getting himself in for. Probably he's a he is a crafty veteran. He was probably probably ready to do the same thing to to Fujita. So maybe Fujita was a very smart man to uh, just attack him right away. But and I gotta make a make a note here that you know like these kicks to Chono, they look weak as shit. I mean we 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 built up <laughs> Fujita as like this legit shooter. He's he's got a legit MMA background. He's been in with the toughest fighters in MMA during the during his time in in Pride and such. But I don't know what was with this match. I think maybe he was like trying not to hurt Chono, but like I just was watching this match, these kicks. I'm just like, dude, like where's the Vegeta that like I kind of remember from other matches? Like if you watch his matches with Yuji Nagata, man, th- those guys just lay into each other. He is he's not doing the same to Chono, which I I think has a lot to do with like Chono's you know con- physical condition at this point in his career, you know. Sure, that's that's all I could probably put it down to because you're you're right. Fujita is generally a monster in the ring, and I actually wrote that in my notes when I watched that he looked very tentative at the beginning. Yeah, and then so we continue, and uh, Chono dodges some form of a running tackle that Fujita is attempting, and and launches him to the outside, and then he follows him up, follows him out there, and proceeds to attack him. Uh, Fujita catches Chono as he's getting back into the ring, and give him gives him what has to look like what's supposed to look like a German suplex, but I can't tell because it looks like shit. <laughs> it's like, what is that? <laughs> what, what, what the fuck did he just hit him with? I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell honestly. So, uh, Fujita is about to, uh, run his, ram his knee into Chono's face, but Chono uh, moves and Fujita hits the outside ring post instead. And I just wrote down, ouch, that must've hurt. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't have tickled. Yeah. You gotta be really careful. I imagine as a wrestler, when you, once you get outside the ring and you're dealing with all these like very hard surfaces, like the ring post, maybe if there's a ring barrier, the floor itself. Yes. Well, you should, but it seems to be where we take the least amount of care because countless wrestlers over the year years have managed to wrap a limb around the ring post, trying to strike their opponent. You'd, you'd think we'd have learnt by now. And we'd just, just steer away from striking. There's, you know, the pole's not a huge target there. I could just move my opponent three or four feet to the left or the right, and then I wouldn't have this problem. Right, exactly. Wrestling, great. Uh, uh, Fujita is able to recover, and he follows Chono back into the ring where he hits Chono with some atrocious fucking knees again and boring stomps. And I have to say, Shinya Hashimoto, in this match, Fujita is not anywhere close to being Shinya Hashimoto, who would have just beat the shit out of Chono because they're friends. And it, and it seems like, I always make this point in, in wrestling, that the people who are the closest to each other outside the ring tend to beat the shit out of each other the most in the ring. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. There's there's a level of trust there when you're in there with someone who you're comfortable with. And also that 
that those are the people you want to push the boundaries with. You want to have an experience with them that you can't have with anybody else. And I think particularly for wrestlers who are traveling town to town every night, you know, to, to, to be injured would be, uh, would be horrible and then have to deal with the the travel and then backing up every night, night after night with wrestlers who you don't know and you don't know if you can trust them. So I think when you get into a comfortable situation, you're definitely, you're definitely more keen to push the boundaries. Yes. I, 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 so that being said, like Vegeta doesn't seem like he's that comfortable pushing boundaries with, with Chono. Cause I think he, he just wants to make sure he doesn't hurt him or anything like that. Um, back I, to the- I will say for, for the the level level of intensity we're used to from Vegeta, that the knees looked very safe, but his uh, his stomps looked devastating. There was there was once or twice where he just tap danced on Chono, and it really had me cringing. Okay, I must have missed those. I might have been taking notes, looking down at my uh, my uh, my uh, my notes when I was when that happened. Uh, Vegeta <laughs> does hit a very nice looking. Backdrop suplex on Chono, and then he puts Chono in a sleeper hold, but fortunately Chono is able to uh, reach the ropes and escape the hold. Uh, next, uh, Fujita goes for a front neck lock, but Chono again hits the ropes, gets out of it. Uh, Chono hits his own back suplex, and Fujita just no-sells it, pops right back up to a rather tepid response from the crowd, like no one's really caring about like anything Fujita is doing, it seems in this match, or or maybe even Chono. Um, I I gotta say, like of all the G ones, like this is number fifteen that the fifteenth match in the series I've I've reviewed. That you know this has been probably one of the most like um, lackluster crowd responses outside of the beginning when when the crowd was really into chanting Chono's name. Like through the course of the match, the crowd just seems to be getting less and less into this match, Davis. It seemed like they were going for a very simple story and that they were they were hoping that the the want of the crowd to see Chono get up for one more G1 victory, uh, especially against uh, Fujita, that this would be the thing that would drive the match. And I think as the match goes on, that definitely comes to bear some fruit. But um, actually, something I wanted to ask you about was that the choke and the front face lock they both don't get much of a reaction. And I think that uh, how much has the MMA awareness of both the wrestlers and the crowd over the last 15 years changed? Because I think if Vegeta were to slap that same sleeper hold on Chono now, I think it would get a completely different reaction. Oh, I totally agree with you. I think the proliferation of like like legit MMA holds, like especially like arm bars, like chokes and and neck locks and things like that have like just migrated into pro wrestling uh into into japanese pro wrestling like it's always kind of been in japanese pro wrestling but like it as as soon as it kind of migrated into like american pro wrestling i think and became more effective for some reason that kind of kind of made it more effective in in japan it seemed like you'll see like some bigger stars in japan thinking okay that worked as a transition move or just kind of a wear down move before, but this guy in this company over in America is using it as a finisher. Okay. I can use it as a near finish or like the finish itself. So I, I definitely think, yeah, the, the proliferation because it's, it's funny in Japan because pride had like died. And so like MMA as a, as a, as a kind of a entertainment industry kind of died in Japan as well. Whereas yes. UFC rose and like the, you know, like, and then I keep using the word proliferation, but like the spread of 
the effectiveness of mixed martial arts holds that we before pro wrestling would have been i guess transition holds now it became legit finishers like you'll see a an ankle lock that's a finisher uh i don't know like a fujiwara armbar it's a finisher now you know like someone can it's, it's just education of the audience i guess and like there's so much crossover between mma fans and and pro wrestling fans especially in america these days it just shows how far ahead of the curve the New Japan juniors were in the mid to late 90s because uh, guys like Kanemoto were already, and, and Otani as well, they were already embracing that style of wrestling at that time. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I say this about Kochi Kanemoto. He is probably one of the most underrated, most influential wrestlers in wrestling today. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So uh, let's get back to the match. Uh, Chono does take control of this match. He uses a spitting uh, heel uh, heel kick, a DDT, and a shiny wizard, and goes for the cover. But he only gets a two. So he's he's kind of like paying homage to his one of his friends, uh, Keiji Muto, whose uh, shining wizard was a big, big, big uh, move in, in from the year two thousand one, which is when he introduced it to even to this day. I think it's it's not so much a finisher, but it does. Occasionally, you'll see a wrestler use these moves, but when you were wrestling, when you started wrestling, how prevalent was the Shining Wizard as a move in in the scene? Everybody loved it. It was, it was the, I think wrestling goes through cycles where there are particular moves and, um, I mean, the, the Shining Wizard was the first one, but then also to... Uh, Chono's finish where he would use the kick instead, I think that that style of setup jumping off the knee into some form of strike that just completely took hold in the early 2000s and then later on we moved to the go to sleep and variations of the go to sleep that everybody wanted to incorporate so i think wrestling has these cool moves that sort of catch on with everybody and then everyone's looking to put their own little spin on it and make it their own yeah nowadays it's like you know the the, the running knee strike that i i think was like you know like pioneered by uh, Naomichi Marafuji and then like popularized more yep. by by Kenny Omega and like now everyone seems to be doing some kind of a running knee strike uh, to varying degrees of success. I I think right now for my money the the best running knee strike and the best like person who throws a knee is this uh, is a wrestler in Stardom by the name of Arisa Hoshiki. She's just fucking amazing throwing these knees and she doesn't even slap her thigh. That's how good she is. She doesn't have to slap her thigh like repeatedly to get the sound coming from the, the, the actual impact of the move itself. And I don't think she's actually hurting her opponents when she's hitting them with that knee either. Uh, but moving back to Masahiro Chono, at this point, he decides to rip his pant leg to reveal that he has a knee brace similar to like what Stone Cold Steve Austin would, would wear during his heyday. And he delivers like a move that you just mentioned, Davis. He uses a shining Yakuza kick uh, yep. and then he goes for a second one, and then a third one. Uh, he tries a third one, but it's halted by Fujita with a massive knee lift. Uh, then Fujita goes back on his uh, <laughs> unimaginative offense, uh, trying not to hurt Masahiro Chono in this match. Uh, uh, Chono <laughs> cuts off uh, Fujita with a drop kick to the knee and slaps on the uh, STF. Uh, and the, at this point, the crowd is now firmly behind chono to to win this match um chono transitions from the stf into a kind of inverted version of it that it's kind of hard to describe how would you describe this version of what he's trying to do with his his uh, patented stf here davis it was really interesting wasn't it he he rolled onto his back which 
I suppose in reality would probably take some of the leverage away, but it it looked really cool. Um, Fujita looked like he was really stretched by it, um, and it got a fantastic reaction from the crowd as well. This this is the point in the match where the crowd really really starts to lift, and I think that we you referenced earlier Fujita no selling the the backdrop that he took, and it looked to me maybe like he was almost trying to discredit the move or discredit Chono as being a, a strict pro wrestler against his uh, amateur wrestling, his real style, I guess. And um, it was it was cool here that the when he drop kicks Vegeta, when Chono drop kicks Vegeta in the knee, there's a huge sell there right before the STF gets slapped on. And I think although the... Although the way he sold the the backdrop earlier was probably a little bit clunky, it, it lacked the finesse of a Kabashi or a Masawa. Um, I think it the the lack of sell there really then brought the crowd to life when he sold the the drop kick to the knee so big. It seemed to it seemed to almost let the crowd know this is an important moment in the match now, and you you could feel the crowd getting up, feeling that Chono could probably win at this point. Yeah, you know, Fujita, you know, like is in this inverted version of the STF and, and he, he's able to power out of it. But then Chono is able to put him back into the, the regular version of the STF. Um, Fujita is struggling to the ropes to escape. But at this point, Chono gets up and hits him with uh, Fujita's own signature knee strikes. And the ironic thing here, Davis, is that these look way better than anything Fujita has thrown in this match, <laughs> in, my, in my estimation. Uh, Ch- Chono goes for a shining uh, uh, Yakuza kick again. There's a two count. He goes for another one. And this time, he gets the three. But, you know, Fujita being, you know, being a guy who's, like, really smart, he kicks out at 3.1, you know? It was a... It was a strong finish, and then yeah, the 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 kick out kind of took away from that a little bit. Although I, I suppose they're trying absolutely everything they can to project uh, protect Vegeta in this moment that he's he's losing to the the aging veteran. Um, yeah, it was. Um, you're you're absolutely right. Chono's knees at the end. <laughs> he was not holding anything back. This is. This is what we probably would have expected from Fujita in the beginning. Chono really unloads on him at the end. Um, and then Fujita has this one last moment where it kind of feels like that the moment in the horror movie where the the killer just rises up one last time and he 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 sits up on one knee with this rage and fury in his face and then Chono just, just dives into him with the Yakuza kick and finishes him off. Yeah, I gotta say, like, I-, I can imagine, like, you know, maybe before the match that maybe Antonio Noki was in Sumo Hall, he pulled Fujita's like, hey, you're going over, you're not going over, but, you know, kick out at 3.1, okay? So keep, keep yourself strong. It's okay. Okay, so we, we went through this uh, very uh, epic match at, uh, at Davis. Do you know what the-, the time of this match was? Jay's. Uh, knowing knowing what you referenced earlier that none of Fujita's matches got past 10 minutes i'm going to say that it was just sub 10 maybe 9 9 and a half uh you're close it's uh, it, this match total runtime is 8 minutes and 52 seconds which i think might be the record of the lo- of the uh the shortest G1 match that i've reviewed uh, at, at least up to this point. So uh, from there, we can talk about Chono. He has won his fifth uh, G1, which would also be his his last 
uh, G1 that he wins, uh, which, you know, he, he had pretty much established himself as the legend of the tournament. I think really by the time he's, he won, he won his third, uh, you know, his third G1 uh, championship. I think the fourth and fifth ones were just kind of, I, my estimation, they were just like wins for him because they had no one else to go to at this point. Like they, they, they saw him as the biggest star in the company and they were not as keen to necessarily push other people to that level, even though there are like people who won in between his wins. It just seemed like at this point, it's like, we got to go back to, you know, Chono. He's, he's still loved by the new Japan faithful. We're not necessarily getting these new fans to come into the company for, via like pride or like ascending, like Eugene, a to get slaughtered by Mirko Crow cop on a, an MMA show, things like that. You know, I think that it's something that new Japan did in the past that I think they've they've now moved away from quite strongly. If you if you look at the handling of Tenzan and Nagata over the last few years, and you know I I saw Nagata live here in Australia, and to me he's still an absolutely outstanding uh, competitor who should be used in a, a much greater role than he is currently. But New Japan used to constantly go back to the past. Um, they would they would always. Choshu would come back for one last match. Anoki would come back for one last match. Um, a lot of these guys stayed probably well past what most people would consider their primes for, for one last match. And they're still extremely beloved figures. Um, but nowadays it seems like new Japan's moved on from that philosophy. And that nowadays when once, once those guys are past their physical prime, uh, it seems like they're moved on and, and fed to the young pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I I make an argument that if New Japan actually like current New Japan had uh like a good tag division, you could easily put like Kojima and and Nagata as these veteran tag partners to young guys who would learn from like being in the ring as their partners and being across the ring from like say you have like like Shota Umino and Yuji Nagata as a regular tag team, and then across is uh, Uemura and Satoshi Kojima, and you just have these guys fight like every night against each other. My God, Umaro is going to learn so much tagging with Kojima and fighting Nagata. And Umaro would do the same. He would learn so much from, from being on the same side as Nagata, but also fighting someone like with the, the breadth of experience that like Satoshi Kojima has. But they don't, they don't do that because they don't really have a, a tag division that they, they care about where you could easily do this. I always liken the idea of like, say, Ole Anderson and, and Arn Anderson as a perfect example of like the veteran taking this guy who's like kind of still new to the business and teaching him so much by being his his mentor in the ring and probably driving around with him uh like up and down the roads in in the, the mid-atlantic region at the time and i think that's why you know arn anderson is as good a wrestler as he is because he got mentored by you know his on-screen tag team partner ole anderson who i'm sure was his mentor outside the ring to some degree as well you know i think that's something that noah actually did quite well in their early years that they would um they would pair guys in this relationship between the the more established. I know that there's a Japanese word for this, senpai and kohai. Is that is that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, senpai and kohai, yeah. mentor. And, sure, and, and I mean, you know, uh, Kabashi and Shizaki very famously were paired together. Um, I remember Akiyama in his early days as well. Um, I believe he was tied to Tawai at the time. Uh, Akiyama, no, it was uh, first. It was uh, Masawa. And then it was to uh, Kobashi, 
And then like, yep. when he was in Noah, he, his guys were all part of like sternness. So, but he, a lot of his guys were like junior heavyweights, like Makoto Hashi and Yoshinobu Katamaru and people like yep. that were his, his proteges. And, and behind the scenes, like, of course, the, the, the recently passed away, Asushi Aoki was like kind of his protege as well, but not, not necessarily on screen. It was more behind the scenes because Akima directly trained him in the Noah sure. Dojo. Uh, I think yep. the, the best, Japanese example would be for my taste would be like Kensuke Sasaki and Katsuhiko Nakajima is the perfect yeah, example absolutely. of Senpai Kohai and Nakajima like naturally gifted as it is but he learned so much from you know Kensuke just taking him to basically every promotion in the country and having him fight all these top stars Tenru, Misawa, Kenta you know Marafuji like they went even down to Dragon Gate and he fought like people like Mo- Masaki Mochizuki. Like, so that's yep. to me the best. And look how good he is. Nakajima is now. You can't tell me that, that, that system does not work. If you have a mentor who's willing to just like grind it into you, like let's go on the grind. We're going to tag, we're going to fight all these big stars. It, and it helps of course, if the mentor, if the senpai is a big star, like Kensuke Sasaki or a Kenta Kabashi or even like a Keiji Muto or someone like that. Right. Absolutely. It's it's something I think we don't see enough of that there there are these you you have so much experience still in New Japan pro wrestling from guys who don't take up uh, huge roles on shows anymore. They're not they're not necessarily featured guys and New Japan has an incredibly strong roster, so I can I can certainly understand them moving these guys into a less prominent role, but to you would think that they could be used in a much more effective manner to help bring along the next generation. And uh, I know obviously there's, there's not a lot of road trips here in Australia, especially from here in Western Australia, where it would take me maybe two days to drive to the next uh, capital city in Adelaide. But I think that's something that's missing is a lot of wrestlers talk about the travel time between towns and how they would get to, sit with great minds of pro wrestling and pick their brain from town to town. Whereas you don't, you don't seem to hear about these uh, long road stories anymore where, where everyone takes these long car trips together and you can have the opportunity. There was nothing to do, but talk and probably fly a combination of flying and the invention of smartphones has meant that we don't have to interact with the human beings around us anymore. Yeah, I do think, you know, as a, as a old school wrestling fan, like you'd hear all these stories about a guy got into a car, we drove, seven hours from like this town in the United States to this town over in like maybe in a border town in Canada. And we just talked about my match or we talked about the, my, 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 my partner's match that, you know, and we dissected it. And this, this is what we did, right. This is what we did wrong. I, I guess that seems to be like less so, but I, I can recall like watching shoot interviews with say like, you know, Chris Hero and CM Punk and Brian Danielson, where they would, they would do these things like with each other. And they would try to get in cars with like, I think the thing with like, say for Chris Hero's example, like he, he did, a, he, he was like kind of mentored by like someone like Tracy Smothers, who was a veteran and, and like part of that old school mentality. And he was like uh, prominent in the eighties and nineties of WCW. So he would tell Chris Hero, like, this is what's good about wrestling. This is what you should do in your matches and pass on that kind of psychology to him, which he would like, I think tries to pass on to younger wrestlers in locker rooms that he visits, you know? Um, but I don't, again, like I want to get back to the post-match of, of the, this G1 climax finals, because it's very important because basically Chono gets on the mic and he pays tribute to his friend, 
Shinya Hashimoto, who we, who we referenced earlier, and the, the thing was that Hashimoto had died about a month le- earlier on July 11th. So the whole post match was just a tribute, and and like him just expressing like his admiration for Hashimoto, and the crowd is there for to pay tribute to Hashimoto as well. You can see all these fans are straight. These great shots of these fans who are just like just chanting Hashimoto's name, and some of them are holding up signs. Uh, like declaring their their like their love for Shin Hashimoto and like kind of their sadness for you know his passing away, but just also just this deep respect that these fans still had for for Hashimoto, like uh, you know in in the place that where where you know he became a star and was really his home for most of his career. Such an important figure in the the changing of the guard in New Japan Pro Wrestling. The uh, one of the three musketeers, obviously, and just such a uh, such a memorable style to watch that um, you know you you know when you've seen a Shinya Hashimoto match, um, you you feel it jump off the screen. It, it's um, and and there have been many who have tried to imitate that style since, but you you could argue that very few, if any, have ever done it better. Yeah, I, I tend to think. You know, like someone like Kawada is maybe better emulated by a lot of modern wrestlers, but mm. Shinya Hashimoto is just like a very unique, you know, figure like as 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 a wrestler stylistically because I I like a lot of his stuff was <laughs> legit, you know, painful. Yeah, like you can tell yep. these 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 blows like the overhead chops, those cannot. Could not have felt good for any of his opponents, and he's caving in people's chests with those kicks. Whereas Kawada would do the same, but like at some point, Kawada's like not, not like not as vicious. I would never say Kawada was as vicious as Hashimoto was. He was stiff and he was like a very intense wrestler, but he was not vicious. Like you know, Hashimoto was really had this mean streak in him as well to some degree. Yeah, it's always it's always interesting to know or to not know uh, how far they go, and it's it's part of the illusion. There have been some guys who I with, within my own circles here who have reputations for being incredibly stiff, who are just fantastic workers, and then there are other guys who throw shots that don't look like much at all, who are just about taking your jaw off. So it's it's always. It's it's so hard to tell, and as a wrestler, I never know what to believe. I, I I watch some of the things, I see some of the things that I've seen, and I never know what to believe. I I know it looks like it hurts a lot, but I also know that some of those guys are genuinely amazing workers. Who it maybe it does hurt, but maybe it doesn't quite hurt as much as I think it does. Yeah, and one final note about the the Shinya Hashimoto tribute was that, you know, we don't get to see it on on New Japan World, but like so, he, Chono, it should be noted that Chono, when he came out for this match, he used Shinya Hashimoto's entrance theme, which got a huge, huge reaction from uh, the audience, of course. Um, so I gotta say. Uh, in my my final estimation of this match between Chono and Fujita was uh, I thought Chono looked okay. Uh, I thought he looked better than his uh, 2002 match with uh, Takayama. Uh, Fujita, I didn't was not impressed at all by his performance this match. I think a lot of it has to do with the idea that you and I put forward during our review is that he's I think he's trying not to hurt Chono. Like he's he's taking it really easy on him, and I don't think he's he's used to just like 
going like you know balls out just like hitting people like like Nagata or Nakanishi who who trust him and like he's he knows that they can take his offense like without him holding back or I think his he's holding back here against Chono and it, it kind of hurts the overall feel of the match for me sure I I watched it the first time and and uh I I, I thought it was okay and then I went back and watched it a second time and uh I'm I'm someone who very much enjoys wrestling on an emotional level um I'll say that uh, I was live for uh, NXT Brooklyn when Bailey and Sasha Banks wrestled. And that's one of the best live wrestling moments I've ever experienced that just the emo- you get swept up in the emotion. And really that's the, the really beautiful thing for me about pro wrestling. And I'll say when I watched it the second time, uh, perhaps with lowered expectations in terms of the actual physics of the match, that I enjoyed the story a lot more the second time of, of this uh, aging veteran trying to pull out this one last victory against this stubborn young uh, badass who didn't want to give an inch. And I enjoyed the story a lot more uh, on a second watch, but in terms of in ring, definitely not the strongest match and probably not the strongest match of the G1 that year for sure. No, definitely not. But I, I do, I do recommend people watch it out of, for curiosity. It is Chono's last appearance, uh, not his last appearance in the G1, but like his last time winning the the championship itself. Um, speaking of championships, uh, Chono did not get a shot at the IWGP title, uh, mainly because like it's not necessarily a thing at this point that the G1 winner gets an automatic title shot against the IWGP champion. So there's nothing to really report on that front. Uh, but this gets us to the point of trivia. Are you ready for some trivia, Davis? Uh, ready probably isn't the word for it, but <laughs> I'm I'm here for trivia. How does okay, that sound? Okay, so I I have tailored this to be for the pop culture aspect of uh, the trivia. I've tailored it to be Australian pop culture. So, uh, what was the number one song on the Australian music charts in August of two thousand and five? Oh my goodness. I have, I don't know how your life has gone. Sorry to completely sidetrack you, but I don't know how your life has gone, but I can remember very clearly and very distinctly movies and songs, probably from the age I was about nine until I was about 19 or 20. And everything from 20 into current day is just an absolute mess for me. Uh, no, I, I would say I'm very similar to you in that respect. Do you, do you want to just give it a, a shot in the dark? It's not... It's an, I believe it's an American artist. I think he's American. Pretty sure he's not Australian. The, the, the singer. Oh, jeez. I'm just going to have, I I think maybe Australian Idol was starting to be a thing around this, this time period. I'm just going to throw a stab out in the dark as, uh, something by Guy Sebastian. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's a song called Lonely by Akon. Ah, yes, I do know. The the name very cleverly. He was formerly a con, apparently. <laughs> Can I tell you a funny story? So one of my previous jobs back in Toronto was I used to work at this secondhand music store. And I get 
And my my uh, the store I worked at was like located in a very heavily like uh, Jamaican uh, neighborhood. So I, I would get this one particular Jamaican guy come in, an older gentleman, and he just say he just asked me if we had like these CDs by. Like he just create these names for them. So yeah, one time he said he asked me if I had the the newest CD by Acorn, and I'm like, who, who the fuck is Acorn? Wait a sec, is it is it his accent? I said, do you mean Acorn? And then he'd always say something to the effect of like, that's what I said. I'm like, uh, yeah, let me check. Uh, we don't have the new one. No, sorry. That, so my other favorite, he once came in. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. He came in one time and he said, do you have the the new CD? by 50 pennies and i'm like you mean you mean 50 cent and he's like that's what i said i'm like okay you're just fuck- <laughs> now you're just fucking with me okay so i just played along with him what was my other one uh virgin girl was was his name for uh for madonna <laughs> uh gaga girl it's like lady gaga uh it, it just he just came up with these like really like i just got into it after like the first couple of times, he just come in like I'm like, okay, what's he gonna call this actor or whoever? But those were the the, the standouts for me: Acorn, Fifty Pennies, uh, Virgin Girl, and Gaga Girl. So that's an amazing lineup right there. It's right there. Uh, what's the uh, number one album on the Australian music charts uh, in August of 2005? It's definitely this an American act. It's a group. Oh, it's a group. Um. What genre genre of music are we I, I, talking about? I guess we could say it's hip hop. Uh, the female member of this group famously urinated herself on on stage. Oh my goodness! Please, I cannot, <clears throat> I cannot talk about the Black Eyed Peas post Fergie. I just cannot do it. Uh, one of my favorite hip hop groups, those those first two or three albums, and then Fergie joins the group, and they become instantly unlistenable. <laughs> Do you know what album I talk about? It's, of course, it is the Black Eyed Peas. Do you know what album I talk about is number one in Australia at this time? Oh, goodness. Monkey Business? Yes, it's Monkey Business. Good. Yay. You're, you're doing really well. You're doing better than <laughs> I'm most. I'm already doing better than I thought I would. Yeah, you're doing better than most during these trivias, uh, trivia sections. Uh, number one movie. It's an American movie. It's it's directed by the man, the, 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 the master of bombastic action movies from America. Oh, so it's a Michael Bay movie, obviously. Yes, yes. Um, oh, jeez. Um, it's a sci-fi Michael Bay movie. Without farting giant robots. It, it's none of those movies. So it's not a Transformers movie, it's not is a what Transformers. you're saying. It's not a Transformers. I would say, my estimation, it's one of his top three Movies and I'm not by any stretch of imagination a Michael Bay fan. I I think most of the movies are absolute dog shit. But there are there are two or three that I really do like. This is one of them. Yeah, I've I've completely woofed on this one, mate. All right, it's The Island, starring uh, Ewan McGregor and I believe Scarlett Johansson. Okay. And I think I think Sean Bean is in this one, but he survives until the end, I believe. But he eventually <laughs> dies because it's a uh, Sean Bean movie and just in case anyone else is anyone's wondering what the other michael bay movies i actually like are I, i'm gonna say pr- uh, one is the other one is bad boys 2 which i think is really one of the best action movies ever made and he like it's definitely better than the first bad boys which i think is just horrible which is oddly enough his first movie as a feature director 
And the the, <laughs> the, fir- the third one is what is it? Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, I think and it, I think no. Wait, was that Tony? Did he direct Enemy of the State? No, no, is that Tony Scott? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember which which. No, there's one more. Uh, oh, did he do that? Thirteen Hours in Benghazi movie. That's the no, one. no, I didn't. He he didn't do that one. Okay, I I don't know. No, I I think he produced it. Maybe. Anyways, there's two: The Island, Bad Boys Two. Go watch those. Skip Armageddon. Skip The Rock. Yeah, I said skip The Rock. That is one of the most egregiously <laughs> horrible stunt stunt acted movies because there's a scene. Michael Bay shoots the stunt actor on the motorcycle chase scene, and you can clearly tell for a whole minute that is not Nicolas Cage. I just thought. That that just ruins the whole movie for me from this point. But anyways, I don't understand how you can be a pro wrestling fan and not like Armageddon. It's just incredibly cheesy, and the the drama just screams pro wrestling. And the 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 way that the emotional cords just belt you over the head. I just thought every pro wrestling fan must love Armageddon. So I take it you're a big Armageddon fan, then. <laughs> I'm not saying that I definitely cried the first time I watched it, but it might actually be the last time I ever remember crying in a movie. Well, you're probably not a cynical bastard like I am. So when I, <laughs> when I first watched uh, Armageddon, I like at that scene, I'm just like, oh, just blow up the fucking asteroid, would you? Oh, fuck, <laughs> sakes. I just, I wanted to leave the theater. It was that horrible for me. But anyways, let, let's move on to the wrestling part of the trivia so let's let's talk about new japan uh davis who would be the iwgp heavyweight champion in 2005 during this tournament oh um my goodness uh tenzan yes correct hiroyoshi tenzan is the iwgp heavyweight champion uh, who are the IWGP heavyweight tag team champions? Oh, goodness. I'll give you a clue. These two would go on to form a, a, a storied and legendary rivalry in New Japan to this day. Or up to the time one of them left for the WWE. Oh, so we're talking Nakamura? Nakamura and... Uh, Tanahashi. Tanahashi. This is the time where they were they were teaming with each other as young. As you spoon fed me that one, so I, you should I, really get the point for that. Well, I I wrote the trivia, so I can't really take any points. But like, it's an interesting. Uh, you know, they they were kind of always positioned as kind of these rivals, but then at some point in their careers, like they graduated from being young lions, and they th- and the, and New Japan thought, okay, we're gonna put them as this kind of you know tag superstar tag team that's later on going to separate and become rivals which is what happened to great success for new japan it's yep. kind of like the the masawa kawada formula from the early 90s where they were teaming together and then they would split off and then they would just become rivals to you know great success for giant baba's uh nine, 1990s all japan and so they new japan kind of copied that formula I, I i don't think it's ever been used as well as it has been in new japan at least for, with as you know, as well as Tanahashi and Nakamura worked out, I can't think of too many teams in the past that had that formula that was so clearly designed to like make these guys partners and then split them up to create this 
like like you know future storylines down down for like however many years that they envisioned that these two would go at it and i think before they ever had an inkling of what you know like okada would become in the company i don't even think okada's has been brought into new japan by ultimo dragon at this point so yeah that these two were, were the guys you know even then in 2005 you knew new japan were like okay tanahashi nakamura these are our guys and then hopefully they'll elevate some of these other dudes like underneath them like naito and goto and you know uh yujiro takahashi who did not become a star at all of course but (laughs) there uh let's move on to dragon gate are you were you a dragon gate fan david i was probably more of a toriumon fan um so watched watched a fair bit in the early years but um i'll say like my this period of of wrestling is probably where i was watching the the least amount of wrestling um i was so heavily into my own training and and so focused on what was going on in my my own life at the time um helping run the the school where i was and and uh trying to trying to become the best wrestler that i could that i I wouldn't say I completely stopped watch re- watching wrestling, but I did tune out a fair bit, and uh, Toriyumon was one of the the uh, sacrifices made. Okay, well, I mean, so from the the ashes of you know Toriyumon getting kind of waylaid by you know like the, the the roster members of of Dragon Gate, what would become Dragon Gate, we 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 see like you know like Ultimo Dragon getting pushed out, so he takes all the the trademarks, what have you, and then we have Dragon Gate left, so. The open the Dragon Gate, uh, open the Dream Gate Championship uh, was the top title in Dragon Gate at this time, and uh, I, I will give you a clue as to who the champion was. He is one of the guys coming over from Toriyaman, but he's not an Ultimo Dragon trainee. He started off in Battle Arts. That's got to be Mochizuki, yeah. Yes, it's Mochizuki. There you go. Uh, and let's move on. Finally, let's go to all the way to America. Who is the WWE champion in uh, in two thousand and five, August? Of- oh, I've got to I've got to think that this is around the time that John Cena is sort of coming to the the front in WWE. Yes, John Cena is the WWE champion. Who is the WWE World Heavyweight Champion? So it's the old WCW Big Gold Belt. Uh, I'm. I will be wrong, but I just can't imagine anyone other than Triple H wearing that belt. <laughs> it's not Triple H. It's uh, one of his greatest uh, rivals. Uh, Batista. Batista. Yes, correct. And finally, last one. Who are the WWE World Tag Team Champions? Oh, uh, I'm gonna go Lance Cade and uh, who was he teaming with? Trevor Murdoch. Trevor Murdoch. But it's not them, no. Hmm. Uh, let me see. One one was in a one of the members of this championship team was in uh, a tag team that disrupted a lot of matches and and were affiliated with Eric Bischoff. And the other guy is was originally in WCW. Oh, so we're we've got an NWO member and somebody else. Not not an NWO member. Um, okay. So well, I'm, I'm with, off on a completely affiliate, different tangent then. Yeah. So he's affiliated with Eric Bischoff in the WWE. Like he had no connection with Eric Bischoff in in WCW because he never worked in WCW. 
His brother would go on to get fired by the WWE. He would go to Japan and then come back repackaged as a as a single star. Oh, um, Bernard and somebody. Uh, okay. I, I one of them is Rosie from Three Minute Warning. Oh, the other would be the Hurricane then. Correct. Yes, it's the Hurricane and Rosie are the WWE World Tag Team Champions. It's kind of funny if you look at Three Minute Warning, like you know, like Rosie kind of just became this comedy wrestler. Uh, and then his partner Jamal went to, and all Japan for wrestling, and he joined like up with like basically all the WWE like Future Endeavor guys at that time would go to all Japan for wrestling because Muto would hire them, and then Taka would take them under his wing, and they'd be part of this group called Roughly Obsessed and Destroy R O N D, and and like uh, you know like Jamal comes in, I'm thinking, oh god, that guy sucked, but then I don't know what happened. Like, he came to Japan, and he just, like, tore it up. Jamal was one of my favorite foreign wrestlers to ever wrestle in Japan. He was such, such a highlight of, of all Japan in 2000. Oh, I'm going to say 2004, 2005. He, he formed this really awesome tag team with, with Taiokea, and they just had these awesome matches together. He would occasionally challenge people like Kojima for, for the Triple Crown Championship. Just amazing. And then, of course, he went back to the WWE and he became Umaga, which and I think he just tore it up there. And and sadly, though, he passed away, you know, and, and I think if he didn't, he would have become one of the, you know, the top stars in the, the, the 2010s. You know, like, I, what, did you ever catch his stuff in in all Japan? No, no, I didn't. Sadly, I, I remember seeing the WWE inspired group, the, all these guys who were getting let go, uh, being in all Japan. I remember that period, but I, I didn't actually catch any of his work in all Japan, but I mean, he, he came back to the States, just a completely different athlete. He was, his stuff was so believable. He was 100% completely invested in everything that he did. And this is something that I know I really push to my students when, when I'm teaching them is, uh, I think when a lot of trainers tell people that less is more, what we really mean is to make the most of everything that you do. And if you're not going to make the most of it, then there's no point doing it. And he was a great example of someone who you hear that term, no wasted motion all the time. And he was one of those guys, everything that he did looked solid. You you couldn't see through anything that he did. I'd, I was, uh, yeah, he was an amazing big man and you just get the feeling he didn't quite in the end, his his passing sort of meant that we never got to see him at his absolute best because you you got the feeling that his best years were still ahead of him. Yeah, I definitely think Vince would have given him like one of the titles for sure. Um, but definitely check out like his stuff in Japan. Yeah, I think you can find a lot of this stuff on YouTube. I don't think it's been like flagged and taken down yet. Uh, so Jamal J A M A L and Taiokea, that tag team is just absolutely fun to watch. Or R O N D. There's no space, by the way. Uh, the the, the, the <laughs> and sign. So it's it's Japanese. Like if you look those up on YouTube, you can probably find a lot of uh, his matches during his time in All Japan. But that being said, let's wrap this up. Uh, Davis, thank you so much for joining me on episode 15 of Cruel Summer, and I, I want to let you take this time to plug anything you would like to plug. 
Sure. Well, first, what I'd like to plug is this uh, podcast network that you're giving me the opportunity to be on. I've been a huge fan of post-wrestling, particularly, obviously, the work of John and Way, but also throughout the years, just getting to know all the the periphery characters that are a part of post-wrestling, Nate Milton and Damian Abraham and yourself and Chris, and to see the success that Chris in particular has gone on to is just really cool. He gets to sit down next to a guy who was very responsible for taking care of me when I was, uh, when I was in LA, Rocky Romero, who I think you'll find is possibly one of the few guys in pro wrestling who nobody would have a bad word to say about just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. But uh, you and Chris were responsible for reigniting my love of Japanese wrestling. As I said, there were, there were a lot of years where uh, just through being so focused on what I was doing here that I was kind of a lapsed fan and I stopped watching and listening to your podcast when uh, Japanese audio wrestling first started on the law, that really helped listening to you guys talk about Japanese wrestling and the, the current generation, you guys helped connect me with modern Japanese professional wrestling when I thought that my days done uh, watching Japanese wrestling were just about over. So thank you very much, firstly, for helping me find my way back to Japanese wrestling. And secondly, for this opportunity to be a part of Cruel Summer, which is just a fantastic opportunity. I'm really enjoying all the podcasts thus far. I, I look forward to them every weekend to help pad out my time and just listen to your takes on on our trip through New Japan Pro Wrestling G1 history. So uh, I'm EPW Davis Storm everywhere. So whether that's uh, Facebook, Twitter, my Instagram account is private. I put a lot of kid uh, photos of my kids up there. But basically, if you're not a creep, I'm happy to let you into the into the world. But if you're a guy with that's following 4,000 accounts and you've never posted a, a picture on Instagram. I'm not cool with that. No, so, be, uh, but yeah, I'm, those, I'm not hard to find. So okay. and, and how uh, about, how thank about the, you again, WH really uh, appreciate the oh, platform, mate. No, how about the school as well? Like if people want to get trained by you. Yeah. Look, if anyone in particularly in Perth, Western Australia, if you're looking for somewhere to train, uh, we're the only school in WA that has, Guys who have gone on to wrestle for Pro Wrestling Noah, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and of course WWE NXT. So we're the Explosive Pro Wrestling School of Pro Wrestling. I know that's a mouthful, um, but people can check us out. We're we're all over Facebook, we're all over Twitter, all over Instagram, and honestly, there's there's a bevy of world class trainers there who will teach you the the right way to get your foot into professional wrestling. So. It's it's basically my goal that when we started, there were no pro wrestling schools in our state. Um, there's now four four separate schools or three separate schools. Um, but, you know, obviously I, I would use this platform to promote my own and just say that um, we're, we're more interested in creating good pro wrestlers than we are necessarily in building people for our own roster or to get you onto a show. We just want to give you the best education in pro wrestling that we possibly can. Yeah. I really enjoy actually uh, David Slater's YouTube channel where he goes through like different wrestling techniques. I find it very illuminating as, as a fan, I have no aspirations of becoming a pro wrestler myself, but just as a, as a fan of, and a fan of like wrestling techniques, I just really, you know, really enjoy, you know, one of your coworkers, Damien Slater's like YouTube videos. And I urge people to go check out his YouTube channel for sure. Uh, but let's add on that note, Davis, thank you so much again 
for being part of Cruel Summer, episode uh, 15. Talk about Chono versus Fujita. It was very nice talking with you. And and maybe in the future, I, I keep on referencing this secret project I have in, in coming up maybe in the fall when, when Cruel Summer has wrapped up that I, I'm probably going to ask you to come on board and, and do uh, an episode of that because I really enjoyed our conversation here. And to all the listeners, thank you so much for all your feedback recently. I, I really appreciate it. It is, it is taken to heart. And thank you for listening to this. And I'll see everyone on the next episode. Bye. Bye.